There are some enormous experiments that go far beyond the capabilities of any one person to perform themselves. If you want to look at the fundamental particles of nature, if you want to search for things that we have not yet found, things like dark matter particles, things like particles that take us beyond the standard model, you need to get really sensitive. That means you need to build detectors that are more sensitive, more precise, and more accurate than anything that's ever come before them. This takes collaborations of hundreds or even thousands of people all doing their own specialized part to add up to a complete experiment that can probe nature like never before. But the people working on this experiment have specialized, unique skills that they bring to the table and capabilities to make one tiny part of this experiment perfect so that the whole can find what it's looking for. How do we do this? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Whether you're looking for the tiniest ghost-like particles like neutrinos or whether you're looking for super heavy particles that might be out there like wimps, like wimpzillas, like sterile neutrinos, or like some mysterious dark matter candidate that we haven't even thought of, you have to use the same type of techniques. You have to use the same experimental apparatuses that have helped us for decades search for and in some cases find these elusive particles of nature and here to tell us about one small component of this and how it fits into the whole I'm so pleased to welcome to the show Nico Sharchevich now of the UK Nico welcome to the show and I'm so happy to have you on Hello, Ethan, and thanks for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. Yeah, so I want to ask, uh, just to start, you know, um, you don't get too many people named Sharchevich uh, in the UK who are native to the UK, and you can tell from your accent that you're not originally from there. But physics and astronomy in particular, these are international endeavors that really know no borders. Um, can I ask you where you're from and how you came to be where you are today? I am uh, from Croatia originally, and I came to Newcastle via Serbia, Austria, Germany, and Italy. <laughs> I mean, this is... I would say this is really international, but this is not atypical in our field at all. Um, like the idea that you would hop from country to country is really no different than in the United States, that you would hop from state to state to go wherever your education would be best, wherever the projects are that you're working on. Like this is truly an international endeavor that doesn't know any borders, isn't it? Yes, I agree. Absolutely. I mean... Uh, living in, in different countries is absolutely amazing. And, uh, but my choice was really, uh, uh, of these countries was, uh, is exactly because of work or uh, education, as you said. 
Yeah. So, um, so you have worked on a number of different experiments. You've worked on NASA's Fermi. Uh, you work now. You're working now on weak lensing. But the place where you've spent the most time and where you've done your most, the most of your work, is on the xenon experiment. And I think the xenon experiment, which nominally is a dark matter experiment searching for dark matter, but it could also turn up a lot of other things other than the specific thing it was designed to look for, um, I think this is really a great example of a large international collaboration where everyone brings their own specialized knowledge to the table. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Xenon collaboration? Yes. Uh, first of all, I'm very grateful that I, I was part of, of Xenon. I'm not anymore for a year, but it is... Um, it is a collaboration of um, of many many different uh, institutions, obviously all over the world, uh, and I can only say that it really runs like a clockwork. Uh, so collaboration of, of this kind for where, where you have a, a dark matter detector, uh, maybe internally you have different working groups, right? So you would have a group dedicated to analysis, you would have a group for Monte Carlo simulations, then for the detector design of the detector itself. Uh, or um, some sort of organizational, right, logistical uh, bod uh, bodies within. And uh, all of these different segments work together like a clockwork. And that is only because of the, you know, you have a, a, a main boss, that is Elena from Columbia University, uh, and then you have other PIs from every institutions that make sure that everything runs like a clockwork. Yeah, I mean, if I were to take a step back and say for our audience what Xenon is and what it does, I would I would describe it probably pretty naively as saying, okay, look, we are looking for some of the rarest processes in nature, right? We're looking for something like if dark matter exists, we are looking for how does dark matter interact and collide with normal matter, with like the normal, basically, xenon atoms that are in this big detector. Um, and this is a real challenge because you have all sorts of particles that are naturally occurring, that are part of the standard model that we already know of, that interact with it. You have radioactive particles that are decaying in the area around the xenon detector, even though the xenon detector is shielded extremely well, right? So what you do yeah. is you have to surround the xenon detector in like lead, which will absorb as much of this radiation as possible. And then you need to surround uh -huh. that lead, which itself is radioactive with old lead from like shipwrecks and stuff that's less radioactive to absorb that and you try and beat this background down as far as you can and then in the end you still have to account for it you still have to say okay i still have neutrinos coming in i still have cosmic rays coming in i still have free neutrons coming in and this is all my background so i need to say based on all of my environment that i can't get rid of and based on all of the background background that's inherent to this experiment, what does that signal look like? And then 
after you do all of this, right, you've got you've got the detector that you had to build. You have all the instruments that you have to hook up correctly. You have all the background that you have to account for. Then you subtract all of that out and you say, okay, here's what I expect to see. And then you run the experiment and does Xenon see anything that's statistically significant that rises above that background. And that's that's sort of like the ideal world of like, if everyone does their part of the experiment correctly, that's what we'll get is we'll be able to say, you had all of this stuff that's background, that's from the normal stuff we understand, and that's what we saw. And then once we account for that, is there anything left over that could be the sign or signature of something new or something interesting? Yeah, I think you, you put it very well. I would just like to correct you. Uh, the way Xenon is shielded. Uh, so Xenon itself is chosen for several reasons. First of all, because it's very heavy, right? So you have a good target. But also it has these properties. It's inert. So it's not going to react with anything, basically. Uh, so you will not have a lot of signals, right? This is a low, low background experiment, uh, or low signal, low, low uh, event rate. Uh, and then uh, also Xenon has this property of shielding itself. So basically the outer volume of, of liquid, because Xenon is in a liquid form, is also protecting itself from the uh, events in, in a way. Uh, but the lead is not used. What is uh, the, the cryostat in which it's basically like a barrel, right, filled with xenon. Uh, it is immersed in a water tank. You, so you have a huge water tank around. And uh, what's most important is that the, the experiment itself is uh, under uh, a mountain. So that's how you get to shielding from, from cosmic uh, oh, right, basically the right. Yeah, that, that's right. Is xenon? Uh, is this the one that's underground beneath Grand Sasso? Yes, exactly. It's in Grand Sasso. Yes. So you have a okay. kilometer and a half of mountain above. Uh, I mean, still, you will see some nuance, right? Some right. They will right. still. I, I mean, this is this is the the issue, right? Is you know, if I say I have cosmic rays, like some of those cosmic rays that are coming in are going to be things like neutrinos that pass through the Earth. And some of those neutrinos are going to interact right right at the end, right at the end of that mountain, just before they get to the detector. And some of them are going to become muons or electrons or other cosmic particles that can come in and actually make an interaction with this detector. Yeah, I guess statistically, right? No matter how much rock overburden you have, you you will still have something for if you run the experiment for uh, a long time. Uh, but uh, also, in, in order to mitigate all of the background that you that you said that come from like natural radioactivity, so the experiment itself, especially for xenon and so on, everything was uh, cleaned very well. And every, literally every piece that goes into the detector from, from plastic pieces to copper pieces to, to stainless steel, everything is, uh, first screened for the background. So you know how much background you're getting, uh, in the first place from, from the material. And then every, when everything is assembled, everything was assembled in clean rooms. Uh, so with a special, sorry, with a special, um, way of, uh, getting rid of radon because radon is very problematic. 
So you you have a lot of things you have to really uh, I'll just say beat down to yeah. get to get this background down as low as possible because you said any any contaminant is going to hurt you. You know there was last year there was I thought a very interesting claim that came out of the Xenon collaboration um, where they said, yeah. hey we we see this bump, we see this yeah. excess of signal, and it's not that many signals, right? We had like, over all this time, we had less than 100 excess event, we had just a few dozen excess events. Yeah. And it could be due to a number of sources, excitingly, of course, it, it could be dark matter. Uh, but something else that was, I thought, a reasonable thing is they said, you know, we have, like you said, this big water tank, that mm. is surrounding and shielding the xenon detector. And in water, you know, you have hydrogen atoms that can come in three forms. You know, we think yeah. about normal water, which is made of standard hydrogen, which just has one proton in it. And then you think of heavy water, which like, okay, a few, a tiny, tiny amount, like 0.002% of all hydrogen atoms are deuterium, which means that in addition to one proton, their nucleus also has a neutron in it. It has a proton and a neutron. This is also stable. It's just, it can make your water heavy because it has that extra neutron. You can have something with two deuterium atoms, so D2O instead of H2O, uh, and that's double heavy water. That's useful in nuclear devices. Uh, but every once in a while, you'll get an interaction where something will deposit still an extra neutron into these hydrogen atoms, and you'll wind up with something called tritium. And tritium is radioactive. I think it has a half-life of about 12 years, um, but tritium is radioactive. It will decay. And one possibility is that, you know, out of these, you know, I'll just say innumerable atoms, you know, it's probably something like 10 to the 30 or so hydrogen atoms that are in here, um, maybe a few dozen of them happen to be tritium atoms that have decayed over the course of this experiment. It's a tiny, tiny fraction, tiny, tiny percentage, but could that have caused this extra signal in xenon? Could that be a, you know, a tiny, minuscule contaminant that, you know, you just haven't been able to get fully rid of yet? I think that that is a very good uh, uh, question and, and something to ponder on. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on set, like analysis at all, so that was not what I did for Xenon. But I, I can tell you that they, I think they wrote the paper very well, uh, and uh, I mean the, the, the editorial team. And um, it it can be like they they really are leaving the room for for uh, uh, discussion. Uh, however, I think uh, with Xenon Anton. Uh, everything is going to be much more clear because uh, the the paper that was published last year was uh, from Xenon One Ton data. Right. So I wanna I wanna explain this for people. Right. There have been a lot of iterations of Xenon yes. over time. Exactly. When I was a grad student, uh, so some fifteen years ago, they were talking about Xenon Ten, which was basically. 10 kilograms of xenon and then they upgraded to xenon 100 which was mm -hmm. 100 kilograms of xenon and now they just finished running xenon one ton which was you know 1000 kilograms or one metric ton of xenon and now they're moving on to xenon 
nt, which is, you know, where n is more than one, n is some number more than one, they're, they're basically saying, look, we're going to just continue to increase the target mass. We're going to increase the amount of xenon in this detector to basically increase the cross-section and the number of chances that anything exotic has to interact with this detector. Um, so when you see these numbers go up or when you hear about these different iterations of xenon, this is really the same core experiment. It's just with larger and larger targets enabling you to get more and more data. For example, xenon 100 got 10 times more data than xenon 10 over the same amount of time. Xenon 1 ton got 100 times the amount of data of xenon uh, 10, and xenon NT is going to get n times the amount of data as xenon 1T. Yes, that is that is true. However, um, it is not only, it is actually very hard to, to upgrade to uh, a bigger detector. Um, because it is not just, oh, let's make a bigger barrel, right, a fillet with xenon, and you can't really use the same um, auxiliary system or, or actually the design inside a detector cannot be the same because you're increasing the volume. So now Anton has the dimensions of, well, I'm going to be basically one, one meter and a half by my one meter and a half uh, of the, really the, the cryostat, well, where the, where the xenon is going to be. And that comes with a really, um, a lot of difficulties of designing uh, uh, inside because you you have, uh, for example, for electrodes you 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 have to spend a really like a few mi like micron or, or six hundred I, I don't re remember now but very thin wires you have to stretch them over a frame uh, that is meter and a half wide and you don't want your your wires to be sagging for example. So people put a lot of research and basically R&D, right, into that to make sure that these wires remain the way they they were um, fixed onto the frame, right? Yeah. And this, this is something I don't think that most people generally appreciate. You know, they hear about these thousand-person collaborations and think like, oh, yeah, you just need all these people to work on this big experiment. And I don't think they realize how many intricate parts there are, how many uh, components have to exist so precisely, and that, like you said, each iteration of this experiment has its own unique challenges. Scaling yeah. something up is not just, oh, you make a bigger version of the same thing or you, you pack more mass into the same device. You have to you have to scale things up, and that means you have to build to the appropriate precision um, these intricate components, these electronic components, these shielding components, all of these different things. Um, one thing that you mentioned was a cryostat, and I'm not sure that that's a term that everyone listening is familiar with. Would you like to explain what a cryostat is to people Absolutely. listening? A cryostat is, is nothing but, uh, if you can imagine it in, 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 in uh, your hand, is a barrel. Basically, uh, seal barrel with uh, in, in case of xenon is, is has double walls because it needs to hold a lot of xenon, right? It has to withhold uh, a lot of um, uh, mass or volume within, 
so therefore it's made of stainless steel and uh, the, the shape is like a cylinder but it doesn't have a flat bottom especially uh, exclusively for this purpose because uh, the, the, the the buoyancy and the pressure right would not uh, withstand so the, the the bottom is curved in a way uh, and this has to be sealed so basically the the TPC so as we call the time projection chamber I think uh, Laura Manenti was mentioning uh, uh, about that in in the Bonda podcast. So she explained. Yeah, we had her we had her on in 2019 and she told us about the time projection chamber. That's uh that was her specialized part of this experiment. Uh and you have one as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I also worked on the TPC itself. So basically that's the heart of the detector. This is where the detection happens. So this is where you fill your barrel with with the active target in our case Xena. But you have to um have a lot of electronic components inside and you uh, have to cool xenon in order to uh, make it liquid, right? So this is a cryostat, that's why, because it's a high, uh, cryogenic temperatures. So uh, xenon uh, becomes liquid, uh, they keep it as uh, minus 100 uh, degrees Celsius. Yeah, and, and interestingly, like minus 100 Celsius, we think of that like that's really cold. Um, you know, as far as experimental physics goes, like that's actually on kind of the warm side that you don't need to get down to like just a few degrees above absolute zero that that you can do this at, you know, even higher than liquid nitrogen temperatures. Like in, in many parts of the world, this is high temperature physics. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think uh, people from, maybe you can have an interview with someone from the cryogenics group. Uh, but, I mean, for me, I, I'm a bit like an amateur, basically make it cold. I really don't know how it works. It is really a sophisticated uh, system, a subsystem, if you want to call it that way, uh, within Xenon with uh, uh, groups from Colombia and, and elsewhere that, that really made, made a, a state-of-the-art um, um, uh, cryogenics for, for Xenon. Now, now uh, can I ask you, is sure. that is that difficult? Is that difficult for you? Is that difficult for other people in the collaboration to know that there are these intricate systems that are part of your experiment that you can you can go learn about them in all the detail you want, but in the end, um, you have to trust that other people that maybe you don't even know who work on this have done a good job of it and their part is good, just like they have to trust you and that your part is good even though they might not know really very much about it? Is that is that Absolutely. like sort of a difficult trust exercise that you have to do? Mm, I don't think it's difficult. I think it is very interesting how this uh, inner dynamics uh, works because, first of all, you... If you've never been part of, of being a part of a corporation, then you wouldn't know, right? I mean, I didn't know. But you you get uh, uh, around it very quickly. You, you start to understand. Okay, this this is uh, this group. Uh, you have some sort of um, basically resources where you can read on how how this is going. That depends on the collaboration, right? If if they have a um, some sort of repository where everything is is uh, saved to, right? Uh, and this is how you can get around to it. But uh, I mean, all of the working groups have leaders, right? And these people are very, uh, they've been working on this for, for decades now. And they're very much, not only professional, but they really know a lot. So uh, 
you can't really just show up with something without having a proper scientific explanation. Why are you, or why you are, uh, why do you want to put this into the detector, right? You can't just show up and do that. There's no way. So there is some protocol that, that is involved in, in this. And uh, in Xenon, it runs really well. Well, that's that's really reassuring to hear. Um, so, so that's what a cryostat is. Basically, it's this large drum that you put your material in and it can cool it down to a low temperature and it can hold this target without deforming um yeah. and uh like basically this is the container where your experiment takes place exactly. and also where you set up these controlled conditions that you need to run the experiment under yes exactly uh, everything is, is kept at a, a certain pressure obviously uh you have to account for that uh and uh, then uh, everything or you have uh, cables right for electrodes because you need to have electric field otherwise your particles your charge particles not going to move at all, uh, right. and you're not going to be able to detect anything. So, right. so, so this there's this idea, right, that a a particle is going to come in from outside of the xenon detector, outside of the cryostat. It's going to interact with the xenon, right? It's going to collide with something. Yeah. As part of this process, there's going to be a recoil. Electrons are going to get kicked off. And that's where this whole big TPC, this big time projection chamber comes in that, oh, now we've got charged particles in here. This is great. So we apply an electric field and these charged particles that probably went off in a track, they made a track somewhere, uh, these are going to move in the electric field, right? You've got charged particles in the electric field, so they're going to exactly. accelerate. And then based on the arrival time of all the signals you get, whatever it is, like uh, photons, electrons, mm -hmm. everything that's in there, it's going to hit the outer walls of the detector or the top of the detector or whatever direction the electric field bends it in. And so you're going to get like multiple arriving signals. And based on what these signals are and when they arrive, you can reconstruct when and where did an interaction occur with these xenon atoms. Exactly. Um, in xenon, it's, it's upwards, right? The way the crest that is mounted, in, it's basically hanging inside the water tank. Uh, there are some really nice pictures, maybe maybe we can share it later. But um, basically, the, the field is... So, so you, you do have the, the, the photosensors, right? The photomultiplier tubes, you have them on, on the bottom and top. Uh, and this is how you, 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 you detect your light. So the first, like, you have two signals, what, what uh, Laura was also mentioning. The first signal is the first interaction uh, somewhere in the liquid part of xenon. And then because you have the electric field, you can drift your electrons upwards and then basically introduce them to the gas phase because there is a little bit of uh, xenon in the gas phase on the top. Uh, and then when it reaches in xenon, then you're going to have a second event where you're going to also produce light. Uh, and uh, that is your second signal. Is in Xenon, they call it S1 and S2. Uh, and based on the, well, because it's, it's a cylinder, right? So the cross-section, top cross-section is going to be a uh, circle. Uh, so you have your XY position uh, based on, well, you see where the light, where, where which photo multiply tube, uh, you know, showed. Uh, but then uh, the difference between the first signal and the second signal, you can infer the, the, the depth in the detector. That means the, the 
the Z coordinate, and that gives you a full 3D reconstruction of the event. Right, and you can do this because you have the two signals, right? This particle comes in, whatever it is, and it hits the xenon, and you get this initial signal of, you know, basically yeah. you have these fast-moving things in this liquid. They emit, you know, Cherenkov radiation or whatever it is, and your photomultiplier tubes around the side, they get you that, yeah. and they basically tell you, you know, okay, uh, somewhere along this line or along this plane, a signal happened. But then you also make these electrons, you apply your electric field so you get these electrons that drift up and that gives you yet another signal so you intersect you know a plane and a line or a plane and uh, and you know another signal and you can basically say oh okay here in three dimensions is where it happened because we have these two signals that arrived at different moments in time and from both of these signals we can it's basically like taking two lines drawing them back and seeing where they meet and that's where yeah. that's where your event occurred yeah yes and uh, if your field is not well, then you don't in xenon case, like it depends on the experiment, right? But in the case of xenon, you definitely do not want your, your electrons to go, you know, weak, zigzag or, or end up on the wall. You just want them straight as, as straight as much because that, uh, if it's not straight, so right, if it, it's, uh, happened in, in, in one place in the detector, but then it drifted like not, uh, did not follow the straight line upwards. Then you can make a, uh, a wrong estimate of where uh, of your set of your uh, vertical coordinate rate. I so, mean, this is this is kind of what everyone is saying that everything has to be pure in the experiment, and you're basically saying my my electric field has to be perfect. It has my to be. Well, maybe I'm biased because I designed the electric field of Xenon <laughs> Anton. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, as, as I think you put it well, it's not that like my work is more important than anything. It's all the pieces matter, right? Every yeah, but your work is also a single point of failure, right? If you don't do your work right, what happens? The electrons don't flow correctly, and you reconstruct where things happened incorrectly, and you've got the wrong you've got the wrong information that you're working with. Exactly, exactly. And, and you Probably. and a thousand other people need to get it right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it is a lot of responsibilities, as, as, as you said. It's it, they have to put some trust, like, okay, the, the big bosses, right? They will put some trust in, in your work if, if you explain your science well, if you if you say, this is what I tested, I simulated, we know this from, from before, because this is not the first time they're making an experiment, right? This is a fifth effect of what they're working on. Fourth, maybe I'm wrong. But so there, there is a lot of experience, there is a lot of data. So basically everybody knows where they're going with, you know, but there's always some little change or major change, some upgrade that uh, is only made uh, in order to improve the experiment, of course. Now, can I ask, are there any instances you can recall and maybe share with us where there was a component of xenon that wasn't correct, where there was someone of these thousand people, uh, someone made a mistake and xenon wound up, you know, what what winds up happening? Do people not get the signal they expect? Do people see a false signal where, you know, there actually was no signal, but they thought there was one? Like, what are some of the things that can go wrong if just one person on their one part uh, has some error happen? Well, 
for example, if you don't clean well your your the components that go inside, right? I'm just talking about the TCC. I mean, no one cares about if the water tank on the outside is a bit dusty, right? But the inside of the detector has to be sterile. And if you made a mistake during cleaning, there is a little bit of dust or, God forbid, hair. I mean, people that were assembling were absolutely in, in you know, in, in suits or constantly. Uh, that can cause problems. Uh, on analysis side, uh, Xenon does blind analysis. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you maybe you mentioned that before, but um, it, it is really... Uh, I, I don't know anything about like that that it actually happened. I've never heard of it. I mean, and I'm sure for for sure I would heard here because people like to talk, right? But no, I mean, uh, xenon is is everything is really run really really well. Uh, I I really uh, have only the best things to say about um, my experience there. So uh, potentially, potentially you can uh, maybe have a leak, right? You don't want to lose xenon. Xenon is very expensive. Uh, so you might potentially have a leak that is, you know, human error, probably. Or if somebody, you know, because uh, sometimes you have to insert uh, radioactive material inside a detector for calibration. Not sometimes, very often. And it is really um, logged in constantly. Uh, you know, how much and when and who did it. So you can you can look back and, you know, uh, to in... in to check on, on well, if, if, if an error like that happens. I mean, a lot of things can go wrong. Uh, for example, oh yeah, it, that is a good one. Uh, when was this? 2018, 17, when there was this massive earthquake in um, in uh, L'Aquila, in Italy, where the detector is. So uh, something like that can really uh, amass an experiment, and, and Xenon had to be shut down because of that. Yeah, uh, was there was there damage to the detector or some of the detector components from that earthquake? Uh, well, I, I'm not really sure. Maybe, maybe well, there's always problems with with uh, with uh, electrodes, right? Because you because it is a very complicated thing to make. Although it's just wires and and on a frame, but you know you have to make it work under these conditions in this you know like uh, temperature or whatever. High, with high voltages, but yeah, there was, it was a little bit problematic. But they managed to, you know, to to get around uh, around it. You know, it's kind of funny. I think a lot of people they have this view of these uh, big physics experiments or big big experiments like this in general as, uh, you know, like oh, these are like these are things that are, um, you know, like these big steel cages and there are, you know, just, you know, wires that'll run, you know, to computers and things like that. And that's where all the processing will occur. And while that's like technically correct, I think anyone who's ever walked into uh, a room where these experiments are taking place or being worked on, uh, they're immediately shocked to see just what a mess of wires uh, <laughs> most of these things look like because this is this is not like some some cleaned up server room in some sci-fi movie that you're seeing this is basically like um, if you can imagine like Medusa but instead of snakes <laughs> for hair you have wires like that's that's kind of what these experiments remind me of is that these are just like these are just like chaos everywhere except for the people who work on them and know where everything is. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, although our, our postdocs before, they really try to, to make sure that those cables are labeled properly and everything is, you know, done the way it should be. Uh, because for Xenon, there is a trick uh, where the, the control tower basically around the experiment is made of plexiglass, so you can really see inside. So if you don't make it look pretty, it's really it's not going to be a good thing for the experiment, like from the PR point of view, I would say. So, oh no, everyone can see inside. They're going to look at your wires. <laughs> yes, yes. No, the wires were done really well uh, uh, before. Before this, this uh, postdoc, he, he left uh, academia. But uh, I mean, funnily enough, the one uh, majority of what Freiburg did, where I was situated, was uh, data acquisition. So they literally every cable that was ordered was uh, gone through to our institute, and uh, then people went to Gansasa to cable the, the whole thing, right? And it was really made sure that that, that was done really, really well. So uh, I've seen pictures, and, and it looks it looks okay, but it is a lot of wires. Yes, it's a lot of cables. Yeah. So, um, you know, everyone who works on this experiment, they have their own unique part. And you mentioned you did the electric field for the time projection chamber. I yeah. know that one of the things you had to do uh, is there is, um, I don't have a better word for it, I'll just say it looks like a cage. Um, <laughs> can you Can you tell us about this cage and what it is and what it does and what what needs to be so precise about it? Well, uh, first of all, it is it was really interesting to do something like that, right? To design a, a really important piece of the detector or part of the detector uh, for someone who's an astrophysicist like me. So it was a challenge a bit to like, oh, you have to understand how it works, right? Uh, well, then you you spend some time learning about it, and then you also try to to see how it was done before. And of course, the third thing that is very important is what were the challenges and and what is what is wrong? How can it be improved? Right? Not like oh, you can always make the same thing and just in, in you know increase the size, but you want to overcome and you, you want to try something new, right? That's what science is about. If, if if maybe I'm wrong, but um... no, 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 you're not wrong. Like this is something you're right. When you build a new thing, uh, you want to make it at least as good as the previous thing. Exactly. If you can, if you can improve it, if you can make it better, um, you know, look, I think people don't really understand that in physics, in astronomy, in any science, when you can make your experiment more precise, you open up what we call discovery potential. You have more potential to discover new things. This is why this is why LIGO strives so hard that they shut down for a year or two at a time to upgrade and make things more sensitive and try and get that little extra, you know, oh, if we could just improve this thing by 50% and get this noise source down a little bit more, then we can be more sensitive and we can search for objects farther away. And that opens up more volume of the universe. And that means we have more potential for discovery. And if we're going and searching for these new effects that happen at very low temperatures, if we can get down to, you know, five nanokelvin instead of 10 nanokelvin, that's going to be great. And the same thing for you. If if you can build a an electric field or a cage that 
can perform in a superior fashion to what the previous cage did, um, then you're going to have, again, more discovery potential. You're going to be able to see a more minute effect in your detector. Absolutely. So you asked, like, basically, I did not answer your question, so I'll try now with this field cage. So basically, you want to introduce the electric field, as we mentioned uh, previously, right? You want to introduce electric field in, in, inside in order to drift uh, the charges. And the way you do it, well, you, you were going to use the electrodes, right? So in the bottom, in, in Xenon case, in the bottom is the cathode. It's, it's negative device. It's minus, well, they're aiming for minus 30 kilovolts. Uh, and then uh, on top you have the gate, which is usually on an, uh, or grounded, and then another one on, on top is anode. Uh, it is very positively biased. And but if you just you know plug it in and turn it on, uh, your field is going to act very weirdly if you know physics. Uh, so the way you need to contain the field, you, you want to make sure that the field lines basically are straight. And when I mean when I say field lines that are straight, that means that you want to make sure that your electron travels exactly upwards vertically, right, with no zigzagging anywhere. Uh, so this is what we already discussed. Uh, and in order to, 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 to contain that field, you build, you, you can do it by making, uh, well, in, because this is a cylinder in, in, in the case of xenon, this barrel you want to make, uh, rings, uh, on, like consecutively, you, you put rings, uh, between the anode and the, not anode, sorry, the gate and cathode, all the way up. So and then you you change the voltage on each ring like you're making it smaller smaller, um, and uh, that's how you want to uh, ensure that your field is straight. But of course, for such a big volume, you have to test it. So the way you do it, you do simulations, and uh, this uh, your field is going to depend on the way your your geometry is with inside the detector, right? So. In, inside, in the center, is basically going to be more or less okay, but at the, at the edges, at the boundaries, is always problematic. And uh, basically, what I did is um, I ran billions of simulations, basically, to see what is the best uh, configuration. So how these rings are going to be, how large these rings are going to be, how separated they are going to be. What are the like? Do, are we going to have two? But basically, what I did is was never done before in an experiment like this. I I actually used two sets of of rings. You have tiny wires, two millimeter cross section wires, and then a, a really big rings, uh, time five times ten uh, millimeter, if I'm co uh, correct. And these, of course, rings and, and wires are made of copper. It's very clean, uh, oxygen free hot copper, and. Um, I call them shapers and guards. This is how they call these two double arrays of, of field rings. So that was my job. And then, of course, not only that, but I was uh, testing the field in many different areas, not just this field cage, but uh, other relevant things that are inside it. That because you have really high fields, you want to make sure you don't have sparks, right? 
You know, it's it's real funny how, you know, you're talking about some of this stuff and it reminds me of, you know, all the all the basic electricity stuff that we learn when we when we start out as physicists that we're like learning about solenoids and Helmholtz coils and all of these sorts of things. And, you know, this is this is in some senses, it's just 19th century physics, you know, that you've got electricity running through copper wires and you you form your wire into a loop and it makes, uh, you know, electric magnetic fields and all of this stuff you're basically using the same type of physics right you're using the same physics here except you know when you're dealing with i would say these difficult boundary conditions where you have the edges of the cryostat the edges of the xenon um you really want to tweak these fields so that every little bit is perfectly homogeneous so that the field is the same everywhere inside this cryostat anywhere your signal would be even at the edges and you know these things that we learn as like approximations um you can't just do that you can't just say like oh yeah we'll just build a solenoid and it'll be fine and everything will be uniform like in practice uh that's not quite the way things work is it no, absolutely not. No, no. You have to, especially when when you're working on a, a multi-million uh, euro experiment, right? You can't just approximate. You have to be very specific about uh, some things like sparks or 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 is this going to work, right? You have to test it. And um, what what I always found interesting is yes it is very simple physics so it is a capacitor right oh you you you're going to use basically you're going to connect these with transistors or whatever right it's it's very, basically the idea is the same but you can't really um, you you have you always can upgrade and improve and and then you have very good suggestions like me as a physicist I can say like oh listen like this you you should do it this way you should increase that but I mean. I can't increase, uh, the field would look, for example, much better if this was much wider, right, of the field cage. But it's impossible because the cryostat is there and then I also have to fight with people the, where the cables are going to go, right? Every millimeter is absolutely uh, valuable inside a detector because you, you want to use your space as much as you, you can because everything depends on the active volume, right? So the, the bigger detector, the the or the harder the detector, the, the the more chances there is that you're going to maybe uh, see a signal, right? Yeah, I mean that's the hope, right? You have more, like you said, you have more discovery potential. You have more stuff to interact with. Um, you have a bigger chance of having an event, of having a a real event where you say, "Oh my gosh, there's my signal right there." Um, this is great. Now, one of the things that I uh, that I understand is maybe not uh, something that people expect is um, a lot of people who work on these detectors uh, curse at these detectors a lot (laughs) when they work on them. Um, And I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit about that. You know, uh, we we think about these things as being like, these ultra ultra precise machines once they're finally configured but to get them into that optimal configuration um i I would say a lot of times it has a lot of false starts 
if that's maybe a fair thing to say. Um, but I, I, I understand that the culture of that experiment is one where, um, you know, people are free to express their frustrations when <laughs> things aren't working the way that they ought to work. What, what, what would you say to that? I would absolutely say, yes. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I don't want to speak for other people. But uh, I mean, every iteration did not go without at least one Slavic curse word. Trust me. That. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is frustrating because you, um, maybe it's different than the theoretical physics. I, I never worked in the field, so I wouldn't know, but there you are mostly isolated or you, you know you're faced with your, I mean, it, it, it has all sets, its own sets, set of problems. But um, here you, you are responsible for your, so you're challenging yourself. You have to, you have to solve something. You have to solve a problem, right? How, how are you going to solve it? And then you have to sit and then, of course, curses are involved and, and then uh, your colleagues have to, you know, listen to that, unfortunately, but that's how it is. And then there are deadlines you have to, you have to deliver. Otherwise, you know, everybody's waiting for you. And that's not good. And it's money is involved and in prestige and whatever, right? With part of academia. So, uh, absolutely, I, w- I would say a lot of, a lot of cur- cursing was, was involved. Yeah, the joke the joke we told when I was a grad student was that uh, experimentalists spend all of their time looking for leaks, and theorists spend all our time looking for factors of two. <laughs> I should not laugh at car because my partner is a theoretical physicist. <laughs> Yeah, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, no, it is true. I remember when I was writing my dissertation, I could not get the math to work out right. And, it, you know, it wasn't a factor of two. It was a factor of like pi over two or something. <laughs> but it was, yeah, like I I got I got hung up on a problem like that for over a month because I, because I lost a multiplicative factor in one of my terms somewhere and I could not make the simulations line up with what I knew the result needed to be from a previous simulation I ran that was simpler and I was like okay look I, I know the result needs to look like this and it isn't looking like that why not and yep sure enough I was missing a factor in there um, so yeah I can, that's... I can relate because uh, two nights ago actually yeah two nights ago I was solving something for for some workshop that I'm attending in cosmology and then I had to just calculate the the density the meta density of photons yeah, right and then there was something was off I was off by a few orders of magnitude and of course I missed the, the you know factor of c squared mm. <laughs> it was always that it's always that you know one of the one of the things I find interesting about this conversation is you're 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 making sure to emphasize that you are an astrophysicist and xenon is sort of interesting because it is this big physics experiment but it's this big physics experiment that's designed to look for dark matter which is you know motivated very strongly from astrophysics um we have this sort of idea that fields like astronomy, astrophysics, and, you know, experimental particle physics are separate fields. And over, you know, even my lifetime, they've become, you know, they overlap a whole lot more than most people think. How how does an astrophysicist wind up working on a particle physics experiment or how does a particle physics experiment person wind up getting a career as an astrophysicist yeah that's a good question yeah i mean there there, there will always be people who will tell you that 
Yeah, there are this segregation in a way, right? There, there is this present, and like especially between ex- experiment and theory, and then astrophysicists are completely like on their own. But it is all all one big field because you can't do one without the other, right? And and majority of of, of stuff that we know is basically like well, it's from astrophysics. It's it's uh, it's it's absolutely beautiful, and. Uh, in my personal case, like I, I don't know for other people, like well, I know for some some of my colleagues, but in my case, I I really always liked particle detectors, and uh, when I was uh, trying to find a PhD, I was actually looking for something like that, where where you and it was advertised as astroparticle physics, right? It's an experiment, and I was not sure if I if I should go with that, or I also had an offer for CTA, which is a Cherenkov telescope array. And then I talked to a professor of mine from Innsbruck, who's the head of the astrophysics in Innsbruck, and, and he said, well, Nicolina, you, you really, you like particle detectors, you should go with that. And, I mean, now I'm not part of it anymore, I, I went back into cosmology, but I, I really don't have any regrets there, because I learned so much, and I, I think I, I got so much experience as, as, like, in this field, and, 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 you know, interaction with people, that's very important, right, for any kind of work. So, um, is it separate? Is it different? It is different and it's the same. Uh, maybe it is, um, I mean, you're doing the same thing, like you, you're doing physics one way or another. Uh, in, in, I've, what I've noticed, because in fiber people are very much into, you know, QFT and, and, you know, whatever loops and, and really high precision physics. And then sometimes you, you would have a seminar with somebody come from, from astrophysics. I, I think there was somebody like a spokesperson from Auger experiment. And then all of these, you know, Higgs physics people was, like really shocked by when they saw the you know plots with with errors from astrophysics and they are used to you know calculating something to i don't even know to to what order and uh, these are the differences because you know you're trained in a certain way and physics is such a such a rich field that that you you really can you know lose yourself in one niche but you have to keep an open mind because you can learn something from you know from other fields that's why you have collaborations where where, where people from, from various backgrounds have different inputs, right? And I think that is the key to have uh, diversity. Yeah, I mean, I think that's incredibly important, not just a diversity of, like, you know, perspectives and fields, but, um, you know, a diversity of the type of data and approaches that you can make i would i would argue that for you um you know for, as someone who you know you've worked in on an astroparticle physics experiment specializing in you know certain types of detectors mm-hmm. um this really gives you a unique toolkit going into uh going into cosmology um because i would say you know everyone is going to learn the same set of things as they, you know, as they work in a field, as they work on an experiment. But because you have a unique history and a unique path where you worked on these things and you learn these things that most people in your field don't learn, you know, yeah, everyone is going to go into this with a unique toolkit and you know someone else might come out with a with a hammer and a drill press and a screwdriver and you might have a miter saw in addition to some (laughs) of those things because of the work you did and 
those skills, um, you know, when you need them, when you need those skills to be there, even though you don't know those are the skills you're going to need, they're just going to be there for you. And there are going to be certain problems that come up that you're going to have a way of looking at them that no one else is going to look at it because of the experiences that you've had working on this experiment that most astrophysicists or most cosmologists haven't had a chance to work on. Like these having that extra bit of experience doing something new especially when you're part of a collaboration means that you you're bringing something to the table that other people around you don't have and most of the time you know I'm not going to lie most of the time those extra things you're bringing to the table aren't going to be useful but on those occasions where they are useful um that's that's really where you, what you learned and what you're capable of is going to be invaluable because you you have this experience that most people don't. And if you want to know the difference, uh, my favorite definition of the difference between an astrophysicist and a physicist comes courtesy of the astrophysicist Sumner Starfield, who told me uh, an astrophysicist is a physicist who has a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like to feel astrophysics is very. Uh, it is most diverse in, in in every sense of the word. Because, for example, um, uh, there is a lot of women uh, in in astrophysics, whereas for particle physics is uh, is really uh, mainly dominated. You know, uh, both of the both of these fields, in my experience, are are fields that are changing in that regard like they both were extremely male dominated extremely dominated by you know i'll just say older white men um is is how they were um i think astronomy is doing more to move away from that and is taking more steps to actively reckon with uh, what in many ways has aspects of a toxic culture to it uh, and to make it more friendly and more inviting to to women, to people of color, to LGBTQ plus people, yeah. um, that astronomy is actually reckoning with that. And physics is, you know, from what I see, um, physics is still lagging behind in that regard uh that physics is not really taking as many active steps to address some of those historical inequities and as someone who is a woman a woman who's worked you know now in both of those fields um do you have a similar perception of that yeah. i i agree with you i i can tell you from from it's just uh there, there was always Astrophysicists were more, I should not say that, maybe, open-minded, but the field itself, not like, you know, individual people, right? I'm just talking about the field. It is really more welcoming and encouraging, and there's a lot of, because there is a lot of uh, um, uh, advertising around it, I guess, and it's, uh, it's done in a, in a much better way than, than for physics, because, I mean, in the way people are really representing physicists as, you know, nerdy. I mean, of course, nerdy. I'm ever, of course, I'm nerdy, whatever. But that's not a negative thing. Uh, you know, like geeks or whatever these derogatory terms are really not, not well. And this is really not the case because a lot of people are just, you know, lovely people who, who, who know physics and mathematics. And that's it. Because physicists in the end are just people with jobs. Hey. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very fair. I remember one time I had a uh, 
I had a student back when I was a professor who she was an undergrad and she was telling me that like it was it was bothering her that like her friends were uh, were making fun of her. They were like they were calling her names and were like, you know, teasing her basically because she was she was studying physics. And I was like, well, what are your friends studying? And she was like theater. And I was like, "Okay, listen, like, look, you have to understand that they are just as nerdy and geeky as you they are just as obsessed about what they're interested in they they spend all their time learning about it immersed in that world just like you you're just also good at math that's it like that's really the only difference and i mean every every literature student that i know is like they're nerding over joyce or faulkner or whatever and i I can nerd about you know seeing a nice equation and saying oh this is beautiful or you know seeing a plot in my case i when i see a nice plot i really like it and uh, we should just not be you know exclusive is it exclusive is that the word in english sorry um yeah Yeah, exclusive works just fine yeah 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 what what i meant is uh but you were right when you said, absolutely agree with you, the physics is a bit lagging, especially particle physics, theoretical particle physics is very, uh, you know, male, male dominated. But they're catching, catching behind. Astronomy is setting a good example, I think. Uh, not just for women, obviously, for, for everyone. It's just, it, the field has to be diverse. Every, uh, every field has to be diverse in order to thrive. Otherwise, you're just stuck with, you know, in one, one spot. That's not good. No, and that's and that's something I think we've seen happen a lot is, you know, if there's like one person or personality or line of thought that everyone in the field is following, um, you really get led to a dead end very quickly. Yeah. Um, that that a lot of people just keep banging their head against these same walls and no progress gets made. I think bringing new people to the table young people to the table people with different perspectives to the table that's that's how you get some of the best ideas we've ever had is from having new perspectives and having people with different skill sets arrive if everyone goes through the same training program from a young age to you know professional age and everyone had the same experiences and the same exposure like where's where's the fun in that where's where's the diversity in that where's the where's the room for new thought and innovation and imagination there it's it's i won't say it's not possible but it's much more difficult to have a new idea when you don't have a new experience absolutely it gets dull and, and you, you, no no you you have to have a uh, but also that depends on on teams right the way where you work and and for example, I, I was very lucky to, well, I, I was not working under her, unfortunately, but she's a lovely, I mean, sure, you know a lot about this. She's just... Oh, my. Laura really Laura great. is actually, I, I know her very well. Laura was a professor at the University of Florida when I was a grad student there. Oh, so, really? Yes. Uh, Laura and I overlapped for uh, multiple years there. I knew a number of her grad students. Um, I went to seminars and had conversations with her, and I've kept up with her career as she's moved back to Europe and to uh, Aachen and uh I think she's in Germany now. No, um, she's in Zurich. She's uh, She's in Zurich, Zurich in Switzerland. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I can't mix up my German and my Swiss German. They'll yell at me. <laughs> Um, you don't want to do that so. no no um but uh yeah she's she's wonderful i like her a lot 
She is wonderful. She is really like, a, well, I, I consider her my mentor because she really helped me through some, some hard times and, and uh, absolutely like we really chat, chat a lot together. Um, but you need people like that, you know, somebody with experience and, and uh, this academic maturity, but also who's very open-minded and understanding. Uh, and um, you, you get that. Then, then you will have, you know, because she's the one who, who's hiring people, for, for example, in, in, in that case, right? So you have to have open-minded um, PIs. Uh, I'm very blessed with the group I'm, I'm currently in in Newcastle because this is a, a proper diverse uh, a group of, of young and old and all kinds of all sorts of ages and levels of experience and it works really well because it really is um, that is the main motto is really inclusivity and and so really support of support of each other and um, I think that uh, we often forget because yeah sure you, you're working on this and that you want to you know meet the deadlines and but you can easily get lost in that Right. You need to step and reflect on, on you know, uh, because this is a, a hard job that is not well paid. <laughs> Basically, everybody says that is true, uh, and you are faced with your intelligence every day. So you need you need to be in a safe environment to do that. And yeah. if, if the collaboration is is, is good, and, and uh, well, I, I think Zenon is is run very well. Well, it depends on you know from group to group, but in general, is 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 well well very well. Um, uh, organized. You and know, I, this is this is I think touching on such an important thing because what you're really talking about is what makes a work environment a good work environment to be in because you are not just pursuing this one thing that you're like, okay, I love this thing and I want to keep doing it as long as I can keep doing it under any circumstances possible. Like, no, like this is this is also something where you go in day to day and you have day to day experiences and some of it is mundane and some of it is repetitive and some of it involves, you know, working within the parameters of the culture that your location has, you know, and, you know, you are living in the UK, you are someone that English is not your first language, you are somewhere where this is not your, this is not your first rodeo, this is not your first time in a department like this, in an environment yeah. like this. Um, what are the things that you value? What are the things that you would want other people to know makes a positive work environment versus a negative work environment like if you were someone who was walking into this environment for the first time what are the good signs that you would tell someone look for these see if this is true about the place where you are to know whether you're in a place where you feel like you're going to thrive or not well, for somebody who would want to apply for a position, but it's very hard. Maybe when people tell you that it's good to, to ask uh, employees already or people who are studying there, but you can't just approach somebody you don't know and ask, like, oh, is your boss okay or not? No one is going to answer that. So it is very hard to gauge that. What I value is, first of all, that uh, our superiors do not treat PhDs and postdocs like assets, but as human beings who, you know, who work, uh, who just work there. And 
the, one of the most valuable things is understanding of each other and in accepting each other the way we are and then trying to you know overcome the circumstances but that depends on you know both 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 sides have to be willing right otherwise it doesn't want it's not going to work it's like oh let's say for example like the hypothetical case i i i'm eager to work on something and, and but i need somebody who has more experience to help me with let being that a, a, a PI or a postdoc, but if that postdoc is spending two months uh, fixing the confish machine instead of helping me, right? Like avoiding yeah. that, we're not going to fi- fix that. We're not going to move anywhere. And then in academia, the way it is, like you are, you know, it's the bottom, it's the fish on the bottom <laughs> that is going to get uh, blamed for something, not people who are higher up the ladder. So it is very tricky, but uh, everything can be done. Uh, if if people are more open-minded and accepted well of each other, right? If you want to accept other person, um, then everything, anything can be done. So yeah. we really finished on a higher moral ground. But I, I really, I really uh, believe in that. Yeah, I know, I know it from from my own experience. It really is. Uh, that's that's the, the the most important thing in any. I mean, not just for physics in any any workplace. You know, I I'm glad I'm glad you were able to share your perspective with us and to and to let us know about this because I I think too many people um, feel very alone if they're having a bad experience if they if if someone is treating them poorly if they're not getting along well with their advisor if they don't feel like they're in a good work environment. A lot of people feel like they're the only one who's going through something like this and that if they are going through something like this, it must be their fault, especially if someone who's more senior in the field is telling them that it's their fault. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I know you're someone who, um, who feels strongly about, about this issue do you do you have a message for anyone who might feel that way? Uh, well, reality in reality, game is rigged. So so you really you have to be very careful in these things. You have to uh, make sure the, what what do you want to achieve? You want to achieve a, a safe environment for yourself. And um, sometimes it, it's good to try to fight. Sometimes it's not. It really it's a case to case basis, but. Um, Take care of yourself and don't let anyone um, make you say otherwise. I mean, of course, you have to sometimes uh, accept the the consequences and you have to be aware of yourself. You can't really just, you know, demand something that is unrealistic. But just just be real with with, with objective or whatever word you want to say. But don't let anyone put you down because it is no one's right to do that. No matter who that person is, it, it, that person does not have absolutely no right to put anyone down. And unfortunately, academia tends to um, breed that type of people. And then if you try to um, fight against it, you, as I said, if you're a big fish, then, then it's fine. But if you're a smaller fish, then uh, there are consequences of that. But still, it's, it's, a, it's a fight. Uh, it's it's worth, worth it to try. Because, uh, you know, change is not done by one case. It has to be a lot of people who are trying to fight for themselves. But uh, my message is don't let anyone put you down. Yeah. 
because you should be respected no matter what. And uh, PIs or, or people in higher places should set exam an example. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it requires an extra level of, you know, stepping back, being resilient and also assessing the situation to really say, you know, wow, like I went, I, I'm a young person, I'm a grad student and I, I gave this talk and this older, established, very well-respected, maybe famous male professor, uh, he came to my talk and he said some very dismissive and disparaging things about me and my research and what could I possibly be thinking. And and people do that. People do that in physics and people in astronomy. And it's yeah. very, it could be very confidence killing to you. And, um, you know, it's very difficult when you are a junior person in the field and an underpowered person in the field to say to yourself, like, wow, this person must have a lot of insecurities to just be losing their um, losing their minds talking to me about my research and I, I have confidence in my research. I know what I've done and I I know that the people I'm working with, they believe in me and what I'm doing. Um, you know, I don't I don't need to feel put down because this person is insecure about something about themselves. But it's it's a challenging thing to do when that person is someone who's, you know, whose respect you would like to have, who you would like to look at you and say, like, this is a good person doing good work in the field. And that's that's something that as a young person, I think it's a very challenging thing to be able to say, you know, no, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Like this person is the one who has the problem. Um, and for me, uh, you know, I've when I've been in that situation, I've often needed reinsurance from reassurance from another senior person that like, no, like yeah. we we are doing it right. We are doing OK here. Like this person is talking about something completely different. And like, why would they say these things that they said like that? We don't you know you need some sort of counter narrative and it's not always easy to have that counter narrative come from just yourself. No, no, no. Uh, I, I had my confidence com completely destroyed uh, by basically systematic uh, intimidation, constant or, or you know, uh, belittling or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure if I'm using the right word. You know, you can use whatever word is the closest approximation of you yeah, want, so and it's okay. You know, when you systematically, yeah, when you systematically put down for, for, you know, a few years, then it gets to you, no matter how strong you are, or confident or whatever, and you, you lose yourself. Uh, and the key to getting out of that, that really dark place is uh, having people who you trust, uh, it doesn't have to be from academia, it doesn't just somebody who really knows you well and to, you know, tell you that, that, uh, that's not the way to do, to go, right? Uh, in academia, for, for the, for the cases you said that somebody, for example, at a conference, you're presenting your work, you're super, you know, stressful and happy and, you know, excited about telling everyone what wonderful science you did and then there is some old, I should not curse that, <laughs> sorry, to show, sorry. 
but some some older guy you know who's really at like uh, exiting his career now and uh, who took I don't know ten years sabbatical basically now he but he's still respected in, in society and in, in the community and and then he asks you something really bad. It's not it's not easy to to handle that. Of course, somebody who's for example first year PhD. It absolutely frightening, I, I would imagine, but it depends on the personality that the PhD is a bit, you know, fighty or feisty like uh, me or something, yeah, it's no problem. But not everybody has thick skin and for sure this per- person should not say something like that. And from my experience at attending all the conferences and, and workshops and whatnot, I, I see it less and less, I, I would say. Sometimes in some provincial Places maybe you would have some, you know, like old old dude who would who would dare to do that, and and some sometimes people are disrespectful of each other. I don't know why, because you can do all of these questions can be asked in many different ways, right? You know, they um, they really can. Without, they really can. It really is like, and and maybe about what, what what I would say in such a situation is like, why are you asking this question this way? Like, are you trying to disrespect me? You absolutely have the right to respond in that way. But not everyone, you know, in a situation like that is not so easy, right? Because you're really shocked and embarrassed. And, um, yeah, you need to surround yourself with people who, who you trust, really, who, who know you to tell you, like, yeah, it's okay, it's just this old part is saying something like that, just ignore. Uh, but they, these people like that, that they're really doing, that should be called out. And they should be called out by, by seniors, somebody on their level, say, like, listen, stop, don't, don't ask that. Um, so it really is a, an effort from, from, from many sides. But just don't be intimidated, like, okay, if this happens to you, it will happen to everyone. It's also a, a good experience to have. It's sometimes in, in, in the career, I guess, you should not just go upwards. You should, you know, get all the bumps and, and just makes you a stronger person, I'd say. Yeah, although I, yeah. I am, I do still find it unfortunate um, that the number of people, some people take so many bumps uh, that, that <laughs> they, that they, that they literally get driven out of the field and um and i don't want someone to come away with the perception that you have to be willing to endure any level of abuse to to be a successful person in a field that still has toxic elements in it i i want to say like you know you always wherever you are whoever you are whatever you do you always have the right to dictate how other people treat you. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely agree with that. Yeah, by by saying what I said, I did, I was not endorsing anything. It's just that, you know, there are some bad people out there. They always will be, and uh, you just try to be kind to everyone, and then don't beat yourself up over some random person who really does not mean anything in your yeah, life. Yeah, and. Sometimes they do, but usually and, they do. And look, you you will beat yourself up over it, like everyone does, and also you yeah. shouldn't. Like, this is not something for you to feel bad about yourself for. This is something where, yeah. where you are doing your best. You are a smart and capable person doing your best at this time. You are not doing it perfectly because nobody is. We are all making mistakes. We are all still learning. We are all still improving. Um, even those of us at the tail end of our careers who have a foot out the door, we're still making contributions and doing our best. And you have to remember yeah. that 
when other people criticize you, number one, that criticism is not always valid. Number two, that criticism is not always based in reality. And number three, that criticism doesn't always have anything to do with you or your work. Often it has to do with this other person, what their preconceptions are, what their insecurities are, what their agendas are. And sometimes that person will be more senior, uh, higher powered, maybe more famous. And that does not mean that this person is either correct or correct to be behaving the way they are. Absolutely agreed. Absolutely. And you're constantly uh you know it's drilled into you that no it has nothing to do with it's not personal it's just your work no 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 it's always the opposite when person tells you that no like i didn't mean it that way it's nothing personal it is exactly personal from my experience <laughs> it was always that it was always that so yeah just don't beat yourself up i mean it is hard but maybe ask yourself will i be upset about it uh, about this particular thing in, in five years it, it's the same thing when you're a teenager and then you don't i don't know you get a zit and then you think the world has stopped but you know now you don't even remember that event so maybe maybe that thinking like that will, will make it feel better at the moment but yeah it's, it's not an easy thing to say i mean I, I maybe sound like i'm the most confident person in the world which is absolutely not the case so uh, but maybe giving some pep talk is, is good no, it, I think it is. And I, I think you're also hitting on something that I think is very important is that if you want to encourage someone, just encourage them. Um, it is not like someone, I feel like that is the cure for the discouragement that people face is, you know, you hit them with encouragement, you, you express confidence in them, you express that you like what they did, you give them this counter messaging, because that's the way you, you do it is you contradict it, you contradict the absurd messaging, the negative messaging that people give you and you, you show them that no, you can do it. And I do believe in you. I remember I asked a, uh, in between when I was an undergrad and when I went to grad school, I asked a former professor of mine, and this is someone who I did research under, and I won an award for my research in his program, and I took his class, and I got an A in his class, and I asked this person for a recommendation uh, for grad school when I was applying, and I told him where I was applying, and he not only said no, he took the time to write me a very nasty letter telling me about how the grad schools I was thinking of applying to were like first and second tier grad schools and they were probably unrealistic and I should probably be thinking of like fourth tier grad schools uh, like this one oh that he recommended God. and uh, and and I got that message and I was like wow like I wonder if he has me confused with someone else. I wonder if he doesn't remember who I am or what I did with him. But, I mean, if this is what he's writing to me, I definitely don't want his recommendation. But also, then I'm thinking, like, because I'm full of self-doubt now, like, is he right? Am I too stupid to go to graduate school? Would I, would I be unsuccessful at this? Like, is his estimation of me correct? And am I delusional? So I wrote to a different professor there and I was like, hey, um, so I was thinking of going to graduate school and I asked someone and this is what they told me. And uh, I'm feeling a little like unsure about myself you know me what do you think can i can i do this if i wanted to go to grad school and learn this stuff like 
do you think I'm capable of doing yeah. this? And, you know, that person wrote me back and he was like, oh, yeah, like, of course you are. I don't know, like, who would tell you that and why would they tell you that thing? Like, of course you are. Like, I, I would be happy to write you a recommendation even though you didn't ask. And, yeah, like, and... It is incredible. It is when I hear things like that, I always find it because when you think about university, right? It is an, it is a, an institution that has two purposes. One is education of like right students or whatever. The other one is research. But then sometimes these people forget that the they just do research and forget that, that education is really important. So education is just like you know telling people how this equation is done or whatever what what it means. It is also encouragement that is also part of, of educating people. And, and you know, like, you, it is a very, uh, uh, very demanding, but very not noble work to encourage somebody to, to you know, to test themselves and, and, and to, to be there for them as a teacher. That is your duty, right? And, and people often forget that. So, so when I hear that something like that happened to you, I just can't believe it. And I heard it before, like, for example, my partner. He was uh, uh, not encouraged that he was specifically told not to, to pursue like a college or even like a university. Now he has a PhD in theoretical physics. Can you imagine a person who actually t told him that like, you know, you should, you are not good for university. Oh, I, I can imagine who such a person would be. I, I can imagine. Um, but also I, I it, it's infuriating, shocked. isn't it? It's infuriating that someone would attempt to keep someone out because, um, yeah. you know, of, I, I can only imagine it's, it's personal reasons, but, you know, I remember, I remember lots of people throughout my life who I would say, um, just, you know, their, their perception of me was that I was, I'll just say not smart or capable or motivated or any number of things that yeah. they thought I needed to be to be successful. And I don't think those things were true. I think I was just not as much like them as they wanted me to be. But that's not what you hear. And that's not something you can necessarily put to yourself put together for yourself, especially when you are so young and so junior and so inexperienced. Yes, yes. That's why you really need to have, if you are lucky enough to have very supportive family or, or friends or a partner, whoever, right? People online, sometimes people, complete strangers can be very, very good uh, in helping you going through, through such phases. Uh, so just try to find your, your safe safe place and, and really try to reassess. Also try to do it with, you, with yourself, right? Really ask yourself, do you really want that? Do you, do you want to pursue? Do, do, you have to be honest with yourself, otherwise you're fooling everyone. But if you really want it and then somebody hurt you and, and that's a put you down, that is really so horrible that I, I, I just don't know what is the motivation of these people who, who are they really insecure? Like, what is that? What is the reason they do that? I, I, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so there, there might be many reasons, but like, really, there's no excuse to be rude. You can joke, but don't be rude to people, especially like you, people don't think that their actions don't affect other people, but they do. Sometimes you might have said something really like whatever, but maybe it stuck with someone for, for a long time and you, and you hurt someone because of what you said. And, and I, I don't know. 
<laughs> we really went philosophical, but really, like, I, I'm really bothered when I, when I hear something, especially with somebody who is in such a place of power, because if you're a teacher, for example, in high school, and primary school, you are there with, with young people who are developing, right? And, and, and they are very tender at that age, and for, for you to say something to, like that, it is very, it, it sticks with, with you, right? And then later in, in academia, like if you're at university, if you're undergrad, a grad student, you have to encourage these the, the students because th- that way they can fulfill their full potential, right? And they will feel motivated. And, and this old school way of like, yeah, we, this is hard. This is exactly the hardest thing to do, math and physics. And you're out if you're not, you know, don't suffer, basically. That is so unnecessary and like outdated that I, I don't even know why it's still present. It really is from 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 like cave age. I don't know if you agree with me, but it's so honest. You know, I've I've certainly experienced a lot of what you're describing, and um, you know, I I feel bad for myself because when you say this, I recognize like back when I was a teenager, um, this was a part of the culture that you know that I thought was was necessary and I thought was like something like I should live up to being a good version of this but also I recognized at the same time like this is so exclusionary of of people and this is so demeaning to others like why 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 would this serve anyone well? And I, I couldn't come up with a good answer to it. Um, but it's one of those things that I think you have to be savvy enough to recognize this is a part of the culture, this is a toxic part of the culture, and I'm going to actively work to fight against it. Um, like that's that's yeah. a that's a set of things that often takes years to come to each of those steps. And I, I'm pleased that the cultures are changing around both astronomy and physics. I think they're changing faster for astronomy than they are for physics, Mm -hmm. but I think they're changing for physics too, even though it's, it's lagging behind. Yeah. Well, for example, on Twitter, like on social media, I don't, I don't know elsewhere, but on Twitter, there's a very nice, community especially particle physics so so there, there is hope there are like people that i talk to most uh on twitter are people from particle physics uh uh area so and they are very open-minded and funny and, and just uh, absolutely uh, lovely to, to 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 spend time with so uh there, there is hope of course uh but i wanted to say just to, to close this uh thing about uh the problem and toxicity in academia or whatever Sometimes, because you are basically born and bred in, in that uh, environment, and sometimes you can't really see. So this is the reference. You need a reference, a point or a reference frame, right? You need to step out, uh, whether that be literally like stepping out of it, or or somebody else who's not part of it to see that this is not how it's supposed supposed to be. Because sometimes, if you if all your friends and that's usually the case, that all of your people, like from people you hang out with, are physicists. And all of you are in the same problem, right? In the same, I'm not going to <laughs> to curse, uh, but um, you need you need a different different perspective, and uh, uh, that is that is that is why you need. All, well, I always uh, mention that like 15 times in this podcast, but uh, you need somebody to to lean on. 
who you really trust. And everything's going to be fine. I mean, in the end, uh, all, all things pass. And uh, what is most important is that you have fun while doing it and that you, you do something that you're proud of. Or, or, because being, being, even if, if you don't end up in academia, right, and do some wonderful science, you still did something. And uh, at least you know more physics and maths than a regular person. That's also fun. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's something that I can't emphasize enough is no matter how things go for you, no matter what you wind up doing uh, after grad school, uh, whether you get your PhD or not, no matter what it is, um, you're always going to have the experiences you had. Yeah. You're always going to have that knowledge that you gained, those skills that you developed, that 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 wonder that you wondered at like you you're always going to have that with you um just because it isn't actively what you're doing now doesn't mean you're any less smart or capable Absolutely. than you were when you were doing it and that these are skills and knowledge that will stay with you throughout your life as long as you you know keep your marbles absolutely absolutely because the the value of a person is really uh, not how many papers you published or or I don't even know how you measure it outside of academia anymore, but it is really, um, people will remember you how, like if you were funny and kind, not about, you know, how many papers you published in whatever PRL or something, right? Yeah, no, it is. Like I, I think about, you know, and I, I, you know, look, you're not supposed to speak all that ill of the dead, but I remember when Murray Gelman passed, um, you know, I, I remembered meeting him and I remembered all the stories people told about him and there were a lot of people when he died who talked about his work and who talked about like the important contributions he made mm -hmm. to the standard model and strong field theory and quarks and you know and the structure of mesons and all of this like yeah he did he made some very important things and more privately there were people who shared stories of him and they were all like the stories that i had of him where um, he was just an insufferable person who was filled with insecurity despite mm. how smart he was, how much he knew, how, the fact that he had a Nobel Prize. Uh, he always had to feel like he was the smartest person oh. at everything in the room, and he just wound up being an insufferable person to most people that he was around most of the time. And, you know, I, I think people who didn't know him will say like you know like oh like he was an important figure in the history of physics and he did some great things uh and that's true and that's really the most positive thing i can say about him because he was a an extremely insecure person who always felt like he had to prove how smart he was at every turn and um you know the fact is other people around him were also very smart and he felt like he had to be the bright and only shining star of wherever he was and that was um that was that yeah, made him a thoroughly people. unpleasant yeah. person to be around yeah I, I know a few people like that I just uh i i, I don't like that i really don't like this it's the same story like oh when you start studying physics and then they Basically, everybody talks about these legends or whatever. It's basically like celebrities. It's a cult of, of a person. No one cares about it in reality. Well, maybe some people do. I don't know why. But like stories about uh, this Dick uh, Richard Feynman, right? 
And then it turns out that it was not so good. I mean, I've, I've also read some stories that were absolutely horrifying. Yeah, yeah, I have I have some stories, although not firsthand. Feynman died when I was still like you know nine or ten years old. Um, but but I, I I heard plenty of stories where I'm like, really, like we're supposed to worship this guy, and this is yeah. what he did to this student. This is what he did to this professor. This is what he did to this person's research. Like the because I think you're right. Um, there are a lot of things that happen where people do wind up being discouraged by people that they idolized. And yeah. that that can be really detrimental when you find out that your heroes are not so heroic. Yeah, but don't idolize. That would be my... <laughs> my, my uh, I mean, I, I never had, like, growing up... Well, I had a very strange childhood, so I didn't have a childhood, basically, but uh, never had a role model or anything. Uh, up until recently, a few years ago, and I started working in Xenon and then meeting Laura Baudis and, and just admiring her like on, on a really profound level, not just as a scientist, but as a woman and, and really achievement and, and juggling all the things. And then later, Amanda Waltman as well. I think those are incredible ladies, and uh, well, I'm very lucky to, to know them. Uh, so, so in a way, I, I can say that, yeah, maybe I aspire to but not really like uh, idolizing or anything. I think that that is then really uh, you're crossing the line there. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's pretty important because uh, like I I've met you now and I think you're great, but I don't <laughs> want you to be the next Laura Boutis or I don't want you to be the next exactly. Elena Prelay. I I want you to be the first and best uh, Nico Sharchevich <laughs> that there is. Thank you, thank you. Yes, yes, I agree. I I. Uh... Just admire, but not really worship, because that is that is a bit creepy, no? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, and I want to thank you for having such a great and wide-ranging and honest discussion about, you know, not only what you work on, but also who you are and who it's important to be and, and some of the problems that people face in the field. Uh, I also want to give you an opportunity before we go and wrap this up. Um, are there any final thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with? Uh, hold on, because we are now fi filming or recording this during this pandemic. Hold on, it's going to get better. Wear a mask and take care of each other and, uh, you know, um, be nice to each other. And everything else is a sec secondary. Well, I think that's a really good message. And, uh, you know, happy 2021, everyone. Things are on the track to get better. And I look forward to that happening as well. I'd like to thank you for joining me here on the Starts With a Bang podcast. And I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, right? The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. And to say thank you, I'd like to give a shout out to everyone donating at the $5 a month level or above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Samir Kumar, Thomas Moore, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Pavel Zuzelski, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Rob Hansen, Stefan Berneger, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Brian Terry, Danny, Denier, Flo, Frank, 
George Church, Hellbender, Jens Krueger, Jerry Wilterding, John Kuzura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Laird Whitehill, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Wafal Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andrew Jason, Arnufel Zepeda, Benhead, Chuck Dannon, Data Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hannah Kahn, Inga Strumke, James Bryson, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lalina Menenti, Lockwood Carlson, James Bryson Hyatt, Mark Langston, Mike, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Tam Sam Surzakian, Steve Steve Shaber, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Thomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, William Vanden Heuvel, Brainwise, Chris Hilly, and Mark Bloor. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. Yeah.